This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by Dominican University Performing Arts Center, presenting Pat Hazel's permanent record on Friday, April 12th in River Forest, Illinois at Lund Auditorium. Reserve your tickets at dom.universitytickets.com. This is Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today we celebrate and salute laughter and the world of comedy with the executive director of the National Comedy Center, the official U.S. cultural institution that's dedicated to the art, creation, and craft of comedy. Here to shine the light on the lighter side of life and comedy is my friend, Journey Gunderson. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's perfect. It's so great to be on the backside of a pandemic talking about comedy and laughter. Yes, it is. The backside of the pandemic. That's on its way to being a punchline of its own, isn't it, Pat? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I just want it to be over like everyone else. It's such a strange eternal picnic we're on where we don't know what's coming next. And there's ants crawling all over the blanket. Yeah, it, we've always needed laughter, but it's it's easy to say that we need it now more than ever. The Comedy Center had just blown onto the scene a year before this happened. And there were accolades of it being recognized as a fantastic museum and a destination to go. And then the brakes get put on. And so let's talk about just how nimbly you approached keeping engagement. What did you guys do at that moment? Can you kind of set the stage for that for me? Sure. And you are right that the existence of the Comedy Center was still pretty young, and we had just been named the best new museum in the country by USA Today and to Time's World's Greatest Places list. So we were gearing up for a big season, and two weeks after the first of those accolades, we were shut down. Immediately, we did two things. Number one, we asked ourselves, how are we going to revamp one of the most interactive museums in the world for an eventual reopening that would still be you know, in a pandemic era of some sort. So we sort of created a task force to focus on that every single day. And the other thing we did was say, this is an opportunity to lean into our online presence and fulfill our mission online in a way that we really hadn't been satisfied with yet. You know, we had been so focused on the actual museum experience that our website, our online presence to that point was mostly just communicating what would be found once you got there. And instead, we launched Comedy Center Anywhere, an online platform, and a couple months later produced the first virtual Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. And so those were kind of the two focus areas. It would be natural to put that web life into sort of a secondary position because you wanted bodies trafficking through this building. I've been there. It's a very immersive experience. So let's talk about the technology. Take everybody just in that first step in the door when they visit, how the technology makes this such a different experience than just walking around looking at old paperwork. Well, I think the hardest thing about building this institution and this museum is that comedy is a really broad subject matter to tackle. You know, that's a, a difficult challenge. Where do you start? What's the entry point to the storytelling? And so for us, we figured out at a certain point in the concept phase that the a good entry point to the storytelling was that comedy was sort of personal, that everybody's sense of humor was a bit different. And we had learned this firsthand from producing comedy festivals for years where, you know, two people go to the same festival and give me completely opposite feedback on the same exact shows, same exact artists. So when a visitor to the National Comedy Center enters the lobby, one of the first things they do is complete a sense of humor profile. It's kind of a fun exercise where you're tapping 
things that you find funny, whether it's individuals and people in comedy or television shows or movies or podcasts, alternate forms of comedy. And all of that data is loaded into an RFID chip that is worn around your wrist. And that allows the exhibits in the museum to respond to your sense of humor. Some exhibits read the room collectively like any good comedian needs to. It was extremely challenging, but it was also a helpful entry point and parameter for the storytelling and a guidepost for us. But there were moments as we headed toward opening day, August 1st, 2018, where you know we were on a pretty aggressive timeline where I said, you know, maybe centering the whole museum experience around one central nervous system <laughs> was a bad idea because this is pretty hard. And if that part doesn't work, like everything's going bust. Right. And you had not seen if the bracelets, if everybody in the bracelets were going to work, like people are going to be walking around these fashionable plastic bracelets and something may or may not come up on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wild ride with a lot of aggressively completed beta testing. I'll say that. Well, I'm just going to step back a little bit in the timeline, because in comedy, timing is everything. Why was it time for a National Comedy Center? Why was it time for comedy to be put in this place where it could be archived and studied and appreciated? That's a great question. I guess I would say just that no one had stepped up to do it before. You know, it's kind of crazy to think that an art form as important as comedy had never had a cultural institution responsible for preserving its heritage until now. So among the things that were accomplished here include that Congress designated a cultural institution on a national level for the first time ever to preserve comedy's history and to tell its story so future generations will know who these artists were. And we've witnessed firsthand how easily things are forgotten. You don't think a figure like George Carlin is going to be easily forgotten, but that's obviously a result of when each of us grew up. But we see high school groups come in and ask for a show of hands, and it's scary what recent history they have no awareness of. Yeah, I know I can say the same of the reference to Johnny Carson and other people to me that were ever-present when I was a kid, and kids today don't know who it is. But you mentioned George Carlin, so let's talk about his archives. Uh, quite a bit of his material is is in your building. Is that right? That's right. We have his 25,000-piece archive, give or take. Well, I was impressed when I saw a desk or there was something interactive technology where I could see his handwritten notes projected on a desk, and I could turn the page with my hand. And But it's so progressive to be able to see the warmth of the handwritten note and yet I can touch it without destroying the original material. We definitely believe that the archives, and this resonated with Kelly Carlin before she had even made the decision to donate the archives to us. She didn't want it to be, in her words, the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where yes, everything's preserved, but nobody can engage with it. And so every museum has to balance presentation and preservation. You know, real artifacts under light, you know, that that's not preserving them, but there's a balance to be struck because otherwise who cares? What's the point of preserving it if nobody's going to engage with it? It was important to us that we not just preserved, in this case, George Carlin's archives, but made it so that people could actually explore these joke notes. The fact that George Carlin was an archivist of his own career and saved everything allowed us to present basically a, a case study 
on one of the most prolific comedic minds the world will ever know through these little scraps of paper. And these are cocktail napkins, hotel stationery, literally torn scraps of paper, no bigger than, you know, two by two inches wide. This is also a good example of an exhibit that we had to design for what we started calling the skimmers, the swimmers, and the divers. So if you're a Carlin nerd for whom this is Mecca and you traveled here because you know the archives are there, you can spend days exploring his joke notes. And if you know his material, you can recognize seedlings of thoughts, uh, musings on a topic and connect them to, you know, completed polished HBO specials that happened years later. And that's brilliant, you know, for people who are really into his comedy. But if you are 20 years old and you've maybe heard of him, but you're not sure why you should care or why he's important, you can also engage with this exhibit the way it's designed, spend, you know, 15 minutes there and move on with the rest of the museum. And I feel good about the fact that we've accomplished something, that we've taught you about this figure in comedy. And he's, you know, somebody that's important that deserves to be revered for what he contributed to our culture. It feels to me like he has enough content and enough two by two scraps that you could make one of those, like a ball pit at a children's museum. You could just take a deep dive into Carlin's two by two pieces of material there. He was an extraordinary writer. And I understand from peeking at the website that you are now going to be the home to Carl Reiner's archives and preserving his material, who I'm a big fan and he was a big influence on me. So is this a brand new announcement? Yes, this just happened within the last uh, year. And Carl Reiner was a founding advisory board member of the National Comedy Center. So he was on board with this mission, the concept of building this institution going back several years. And of course, it was a tremendous loss to the comedy world and the world at large when Carl passed. And we had not discussed the preservation of his archives. And so we worked with the family and the estate. And of course, George Shapiro, his nephew, who is also on our advisory board, and said, hey, we really need to make sure that a career like Carl's is carefully preserved. And it's absolutely incredible what lies therein. Carl Reiner's archive includes the earliest jokes he ever wrote for television. So some of the first jokes he ever wrote, because he didn't start as a comedy writer. He was a, he was an actor and a performer who was sort of annoyingly to the Sid Caesar uh, writers hanging out in the writer's room to the point where they would kick him out. And, you know, the story goes, you may be aware, they kicked him out and he like sat down in the hallway and started writing jokes. And so that is in the archive all the way through the very last things he ever wrote. So it's a tremendous treasure trove and it'll allow people, again, for generations to come to study one of the best in the craft. So much comedy in his DNA and so much influence on even people today who don't know his early writings, his early television creations, all of it that informed so many other people through the Dick Van Dyke show to to directing many Steve Martin movies. And I read a play called Interlaughing and other things that really did impact the idea that you could make a living out of humor. Ultimately, it morphs into a very serious business. You could salute a series of generations from Carl to today, and I look at them almost as graduating classes. So I looked up to the seniors, whether that was uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, Paul Reiser, guys in that era, and I felt, oh, I'm kind of in the 
freshman class right now. And then as I graduated up, I'm now watching people like Nate Bargatze and John Mulaney. And I'm saying, these guys are hilarious. And you have a little bit of each of them represented in your museum. How do you organize that? Sure. Yeah, we made a choice early on to organize sort of by genre versus glorification of the individual. So it's not like you walk through the museum and there's the Jerry Seinfeld wing, which would be difficult. There's so many prolific figures. It's interesting. I think the the initial phase, the initial concept phase was probably the hardest. Every every step of the way was difficult, but figuring out how we would approach this subject matter was extremely difficult. And in the early wing, the first wing of the museum, you're really kind of introduced to the craft from the perspective of writing behind the scenes. So there's a, an exhibit called Page to Stage, and it's not about stand-up or film, but it gives you case studies in both. So you're learning from the artists themselves about their respective processes for writing, whether it be for stand-up or film in these cases. And then in that same wing is the George Carlin archive, which you can explore. And then annotating the experience are the artifacts. So, you know, we joked earlier about stuff in glass cases, but one of the beautiful things I think about how the museum finally came together is that while it's one of the most interactive and immersive experiences in the world, and it's very personal to your own sense of humor and you're using this technology, you're also standing in the presence of the DNA of some of the greats of all time because Charlie Chaplin's cane is right there. You can stand within inches of it. And I can tell you that, that, you know, taking John Mulaney through, and this is common for many uh, comics and obviously stand-ups, he stood and looked at Rodney Dangerfield's handwritten joke notes for a long time. And they're in his monogrammed leather duffel bag that he took to every show with his, his, his weathered, <laughs> his weathered notes like spilling out of it. Um, and you can see how Rodney organized his set. And the fact that on the top left corner of the page, it says, what a crowd, parenthesis, two X. Like he, <laughs> like he told himself in written form to remind what himself. What a crowd. What a crowd. Right. What a crowd. And wrote it down. I guess I'll say that when I think about casual c- comedy consumers entering the museum who don't really think about the behind the scenes or the process, they're very quickly in the first wing introduced to the fact that somebody who looked like he was probably winging it on stage from their perspective, like Rodney Dangerfield, they're introduced to the fact that, wow, there's a lot of honing and precision to this that I didn't realize. And I would say that kind of summarizes, again, the compass for the entirety of the storytelling in the exhibits. It was about pulling back the curtain on the creative process and making sure to instill in visitors a greater level of respect for the craft of comedy. Right. No better person to say that about than Rodney Dangerfield for the respect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and really, to credit those writings and those notes and the honing that you mentioned, Rodney Dangerfield was a comedian for many years. He started out as Jack Roy and he was doing the job, but he wasn't not only not getting respect, he just wasn't recognized until he was much older. He spent a lifetime building this character and this voice and this point of view, and then he hit the bullseye. And so therefore his stand-up took him onto Caddyshack. And all of those things are reflected in your museum because you do expand beyond the stage and go to film and television, right? Oh, yes. You know, one of the things that I love about comedy that you kind of just hit on is that nobody gets good 
without putting in the work. And I think that's another takeaway from the museum experience that I hope that we achieved in the storytelling. Talk about earning respect or having to fight for it. Across from Dangerfield is a case where you see Joan Rivers' professional papers that she also carried with her on the road in a briefcase. And one of them is a typed on a typewriter, 17 ways to handle a heckler. And people will ask like, oh, is that a bit? And I'm like, it's not a bit. She had to have this with her on the road because she needed 17 ways to be ready to handle a heckler. You know, she's one of the earliest women to do stand up and just imagine what she must have endured on the road. Yeah, I really can't. I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for her entering that world in that sort of man's place on stage. There's no reason that it should have been that way, but it was a boys club. And in many ways, there's still a kind of resistance to that, even though there's tremendous amount of great voices of all ilks from all over the world. But it, it is interesting how it's like you got to come in to compete you got to come in to play for the real goods. And, and that's what I saw in the character of Elaine on Seinfeld is she was one of the guys. She would give him a shove. She, you know, she wasn't going to take any shit. And I do think that I have tremendous respect for any women in comedy that have been able to sort of keep their bearings and keep their focus and find their voice and really cut through the unnecessary crap of there being like comedy is genderless. It's in many ways ageless. It's raceless. And that's kind of one of the beauties of you having this National Comedy Center is that it's all inclusive. I do like that you have the blue room downstairs in the basement, which means that if somebody wants to come through with their kids and see the sort of normal exhibits and all that, you've now created the teacher's lounge or the grown-up table or something. (laughs) Tell people about what the Blue Room is. And I feel like that's one of the great surprises when you come into the museum. Well, there's a bar down there, and that's probably all you need to know. No, it it (laughs) is true. There are a couple of bars in this museum. You start the kids smoking and drinking early, (laughs) so they'll be ready for comedy clubs. (laughs) The impetus for that was that very early on, as we were raising money to build the National Comedy Center, In speaking with comedians, it should come as no surprise that there was this level of skepticism, like, wait a minute, are you going to Disneyfy comedy? What are you building? You know, a tourist attraction about this art form. And at the same time, New York State tourism marketing firm was sort of helping us inform an approach to the project because New York State invested money in this project. And their consultants said, hey, a major demographic to go after in tourism right now is families with children. And so early on, I'm thinking like, how are we going to navigate this? We can't censor the very thing we're celebrating. And so born out of that was the idea that there would be a lower level of the museum, an entire floor that was a completely uncensored experience. And that actually leans into storytelling around freedom of speech and the First Amendment and what has been considered Taboo. There's an exhibit there called The History of Taboo. We really get into the history of roasts and insult comedy. And then there's a fun sort of exploratory experience where you're opening little peep show doors on a wall, seeing, quote unquote, some of the most explicit or controversial jokes of all time. Of which they show a little bit of a video clip or there's a punchline printed or something like that. Uh, It's done artfully and with whimsy. No, it feels like that area is going to have to be expanded. There's just so many people saying so many things in an uncensored way. And I I guess I'll take this to an area where we don't have to be definitive. We don't have to talk about anybody specific. 
But I imagine as the executive director of the National Comedy Center, you are probably often asked now about cancel culture. Should you take something out of a museum? Should you take somebody off an exhibit? This is more meant for general than specific, but how do you respond to that in terms of if something was of its time or we've grown since then and it sort of reflects a moment in time? Take me through your your point of view on that. Sure. Well, one thing about comedy is that it's temporal. So it's very much of the moment. And a major part of the role we play as a cultural institution is to provide context so that something can be appreciated for the time that it existed, that it, that it was the time that a joke was first told for all kinds of reasons, just so that it can be appreciated today. So generally speaking, we're always focused on providing context. And then I guess to be more specific to this issue at hand, when we were building the museum, we did have to face questions about controversial figures and whether they would be included. And our compass there was to err on the side of inclusion when necessary for storytelling. Our, the onus on us is to tell comedy's story and to get the history right. And so we're not going to talk about the history of comedy on television and pretend the Cosby show didn't exist. We have to talk about why it was important and the significant role that it played. So the onus on us was to be true to the storytelling. But it also speaks to a very important part of why your success, and that is telling the story of comedy. This was born in Jamestown, New York, being the home of Lucille Ball, and there being a big Lucille Ball, a Lucy and Desi museum. It was really the idea, I think, of Lucy not to just glorify her, but to give a voice to all comics. Maybe you were there in that moment. So tell me what the directive was. Yeah, Lucille Ball, you know, for those of you who don't know, she wasn't just this amazing comedic actress who starred in I Love Lucy or Got Lucky. She was an incredibly savvy businesswoman, first female head of a major Hollywood studio, responsible for giving many people in comedy and many women as well their starts. When the officials in Jamestown approached her in the late 80s and said, we've been remiss in not celebrating your legacy. We want to build a museum about you. She said then, don't just make it about me. Don't just make it about I Love Lucy Nostalgia or put my stuff in glass cases. Make it about all of comedy. And it took us a few decades to get it right, but we eventually did. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that here's this incredibly savvy businesswoman who's also an incredibly talented comedic artist who said, this is a good idea and this should be done. And why not make my hometown the destination for the celebration of all comedy? Because she said then, no one is doing it. No one has done it. Comedy has never gotten the same level of reverence as the other classical or traditional art forms. So it was a mandate from Lucille Ball to her hometown. And, you know, I'm kind of relieved that we have now fulfilled. Well, I think it's amazing. And, and you said the word destination, and I think it, it is that. And, and while it began with a museum recognizing uh, Lucy and Desi, and if you go there, you can see the sets and the furniture and her costumes. And I mean, they were instrumental in the design of three camera sitcom shooting. And I remember seeing editing machines in there and cameras and it kind of blew my mind, but it went from there to her being the title of the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival, which started to allow you to bring in so many names. How many years has that been going on? And can you just sort of name a few of the big names that have been through there? Sure. So it would have been 
I think 31 years this past year before the pandemic. And the early days of the festival featured a young Ray Romano, Ellen DeGeneres, Louis Black, the Smothers Brothers, George Wallace. And then there was a period of time where it narrowed in focus, which I think a lot of people can appreciate if you are familiar with Trekkie conventions or Elvis fans, they're super fans. And there was this period of time where that's what Jamestown as destination became. And it was actually Lucy Arnaz and Desi Jr., the family, who said, this is great in a way that this brand is so powerful and that there's such a strong fan base, but this narrowed in scope to be more about Lucy than about all comedy. When I was hired, it was really specifically to get things back on track to being broadened and about all comedy. And that's when we took a big pivot back with the festival. Joan Rivers was the first artist I booked. Uh, in 2011, which was the 100th birthday celebration of Lucille Ball. I got angry fan mail. I guess it's not fan mail then, but I got angry mail from some Lucy fans who felt that, you know, Joan Rivers comedy wasn't in line with that. I, I quickly learned the power of this phenomenon. And not to mention, comedy brings you right into the world of opinion. Opinion is like vast behind comedy. <laughs> yes, yes. And you you asked, you know, who are some of the big names? So now, you know, most recently, John Mulaney, Sebastian Maniscalco, Lily Tomlin, Amy Schumer, Jim Gaffigan, Louis Black, you know, has performed yeah. now bookending the whole thing. And it's so great. He's a founding advisory board member and has been quite an ambassador for the project as well. So it's kind of come full circle. I love that they get to come in as a performer, but then they get to experience everything that you have to offer. And I just think we know that there's comparisons to other forms like the Rock and Roll History Museums and the Baseball Museum and so forth. It is worth a common person's visit, a the most advanced comics visit to this. And I wonder, do you have people come through there uh, of yet doing research? Are they looking at this material for a book or a movie or something? Are they consulting with you to, to learn more? Yes. And I, I'm glad you asked that because I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that, that we are pretty constantly being contacted for scholarly research. And uh, some students come out to Jamestown and get an Airbnb and stay for weeks, working directly with a member of our archive staff to be able to dig into things that aren't even on display that are getting pretty deep into the craft. You know, we preserved uh, and we present a good deal of Shelley Berman's archive. And, you know, you could trace the lineage from Seinfeld back to Carlin, back to Shelley Berman in terms of who influenced whom. And people are researching that. And we've certainly played a role when it comes to the year that Lucille Ball is having, Amazon's biopic, obviously, with Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. I can see in the trailer how much reverence is put into that. Yes. And, you know, Amy Poehler is directing a documentary about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and is just doing, from what I can tell and from working with her, an incredible job on it. She's so dedicated to the story and to getting it right. And she has such a respect for both Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz uh, that I just feel really fortunate that the legacy is in her hands there. Yeah, well, when you have stewards that are saluting their influences and the people who, I, I'm a huge fan of the Carol Burnett show and of Tim Conway and Harvey Corman. And I can tell you, Every time that was on, I just fell over myself about how much fun they were having putting it on for us. And watching Carol answer questions from the crowd influenced me. And watching Tim Conway crack up Harvey Corman 
I, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. It's not from the show. They were doing a retrospective, and Tim Conway asked Harvey Corman if he had ever used Viagra. And Harvey Corman said, that's like putting a brand new flagpole on a condemned house. <laughs> and they both just couldn't help themselves. They were laughing so hard and it, they were just buddies. And I don't know how many times I've gone back to a clip of Tim Conway getting shot by Novocaine as the dentist or any of those kinds of things. Anytime you can get a comic that has made it to a higher platform to shine the light back on someone who, who led the way for them, you're going to get a, a nice Valentine, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up sort of what it's, been like for people to witness the museum or you were saying that whether you are an ardent comedy fan or a self-identified comedy nerd or just a casual consumer of comedy, you're going to enjoy this museum. The thing I was most nervous about was will the comedians themselves appreciate what we've done here? And, and also it's pretty risky to try to speak to that wide range of, of audiences so I was nervous about that for years. And along the way, it, it was not lost on me that here we were setting forth building an institution for the most anti-establishment <laughs> community there is. Like, there were so many nights I lay awake going like, this is a bad idea. This, this might be a really bad idea. When we're talking about people coming to the National Comedy Center to do research and the various ways that comics themselves traditionally have had to figure it out on their own or just look up to others. Like you said, the, the senior class, a great comic who's been to Jamestown, Tony Deo told me he used to hand write out Brian Reagan's entire albums. You know, he would just listen to them and write them out by hand. And that was part of his process in learning how stand-up works and how a set is crafted. And I just thought that was fascinating. And it speaks to the importance of having the written materials to study. Yeah. And those who don't know Tony, he is a quite a great joke teller and a great joke writer. And he's given birth himself to a son, Carson, who I've heard tell jokes. And so this is now, it's run out of control. Brian Regan has caused a, a giant disaster coming down the pipeline with nothing but funny kids. And, and now I think uh, Carson is old enough. Tony's son, Carson, is old enough to come to the Johnny Carson exhibit in 2022. You weren't born in the comedy family. You didn't study to be a comic. You were an athlete and in sports marketing. And is that what you went to college for? Uh, I went to college for sports media and I was working for Billie Jean King's organization, the Women's Sports Foundation, doing educational media production. Okay. So was it because you were from Jamestown that when this came up, you decided I'm going to immerse myself in all things comedy? More or less. I So I left the Women's Sports Foundation and opened a consulting business doing educational media production, which is interesting because I never thought about the museum space, but obviously producing educational media lends itself to be building a museum. And the other thing that was so parallel was that in the nonprofit sense, at a national scale, sports and comedy have this similarity that you're conveying to people that these are things that can enrich people's lives. At the Women's Sports Foundation, a big part of my job was authoring this educational curriculum for that would encourage girls to be more physically active. You know, even if you weren't an elite athlete, just conveying that there are all these benefits to playing sports because girls who play sports are less likely to stay in abusive relationships, have body image issues, confidence issues, you name it. So it's not like you're curing cancer. 
you know, you're, you're working in the nonprofit space and you're convincing people of the value of this culturally. And that really was parallel to what we were trying to do with comedy. You know, when you're raising money and asking for donations to celebrate the comedic art form, and you know, the next person writing a grant is trying to cure cancer, like it's pretty competitive. So I think that experience served me well. And so long story short, I had opened a consulting business and one of my clients was the Lucille Ball Desiarnez Center. And the board of directors said, this is our, our vision and sort of the mandate that we really make good on Lucille Ball's original vision for the celebration of comedy in her hometown. And I thought, wow, these guys are crazy. You know, here we are 11 years later. Well, you say that you're not curing cancer. And while I agree with that, they say laughter is the best medicine. So I'm going to give you an endorsement. I'm, I'm allowed to call you a hospital as well as a comedy center because you're not curing cancer, but you are helping people cope with cancer. Mm. Comedy and, and attitude and laughter is the very thing that is a survival skill. I mean, I think that's why people are such comedy fans is they're fighting the world, the world at large. They're looking at their stock drop. They're fighting something medical. They're dealing with depression. And comedy is a, a salve that we're getting more and more of. And when you start to find the people that you like, you go to Netflix and you watch their special, you watch their sitcom. In many ways, it is a healing discipline to be a part of. So don't don't discount yourself. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Haven't we kind of had a, more of a front row seat to that than ever in the last couple of years? And I think throughout that, when we were talking about our role and comedy's role and the role of laughter during such grief on such a major level, to me, laughter and, and comedy started to represent hope because I have to think that on one's darkest day, the moment that you can find something funny again feels like, okay, there's hope. Like there are going to be brighter days. I'm not in those days yet, but if in the middle of grieving, I could find something that made me chuckle, it's like the bellwether that things are eventually going to be okay. And there is hope for brighter days ahead where there will be more laughter. Yeah. There's a promise of relief. Mm -hmm. And I imagine your visitors now, because your doors are open and you've taken all precautions to make sure that it's safe and everybody's being able to be in this interactive situation. I imagine their appreciation for it is greater than ever. We do see that. And it's funny to see people who sometimes zoom out of the exhibit media and content, and they just enjoy standing in the vicinity of others who are laughing out loud. This happens a lot at the insult comedy and roast exhibit space down in the blue room, which happens to be one where people are wearing headphones. And I think that makes it even funnier because you're not even hearing the punchlines. You're not hearing the content, but you're standing in a room where there are a bunch of people just laughing out loud. And some people just enjoy that, you know, so it's great. Well, you also have some other interactive things. You have the comedy karaoke stage, which allows anybody to get up and do a comedy routine by looking at a screen and the words go by. I saw a little clip of Brian Regan doing karaoke of his own comedy that he didn't remember. Yes. <laughs> it was funny. So funny. The biggest thing that people learn from comedy karaoke is how hard comedy is because nothing teaches you that lesson like us giving you a teleprompter, handing you some of the strongest material of all time, and people are still completely bombing and they're learning. And this is part of the education. They're learning like, oh, it's not enough to have good writing. 
It's the delivery and the timing of every single syllable that will make or break this performance. And so most people bomb and then they step off the stage, but then they're sort of, but many people are bitten by the bug and they're like, I could do that better. And so we see them come back and keep trying and they are honing their delivery. They may not have the writing yet, but they're learning how, how difficult the process is and how talented comedic artists are. Well, here's what's funny. You just mentioned two elements, the writing and the delivery. But there's all these other sort of miniature things that you don't know, the facial expression, the pause, the whether you step forward or you step back, whether you're doing it as an aside or whether you're doing it direct to the audience. Like all of those nuances, almost every comic has to teach themselves as they discover their own voice. They a lot of times start by emulating somebody. So that's why the karaoke idea is such a good one, which is rather than them ripping off some comic stuff and taking it and doing it on a cruise ship, that they are able to try it safely with their family around. Any of these artists we've even talked about today, how they become big is because they become themselves. They become within their persona and their point of view. You can tell a joke that's a Tina Fey joke. You can tell a joke that's Lewis Black joke because there is something about it that's uniquely comes from the epicenter of who they are. Yes. And I think that's uh, that's a cool thing. While I have you, I want you to tell the story that I heard at a creative retreat about you having to introduce Dan Aykroyd for a Comedy Center <laughs> event. Can you tell me a version of that? Because I, what, why, why I want you to tell it is it's not as an executive director, it's as a person on stage with a microphone required to do what is asked of every comic on the fly when they say, they give you the signal to stretch. So I, I want you just to give us the common person's experience and you got to set it up just a little bit of tell them the why of it, what you were waiting for. So for the grand opening weekend of the National Comedy Center, one of the big moments is for Dan Aykroyd to ride his motorcycle up to the entrance, the motorcycle he's donating to the museum that all of the original cast of Saturday Night Live has ridden. It was the bike he rode across the Washington Street Bridge when he moved to New York to take the job at SNL and used to park it in the mailroom at the base of 30 Rock. So it has all this history. And this is a weekend we're, we're stretched pretty thin and adjacent to the National Comedy Center is a 2,500 seat arena where we have one show letting out and another show starting. So this has been timed and orchestrated pretty carefully to have the maximum number of people at this block party where the street is closed down for this moment. And I'll say that, you know, the production of this particular live moment is not my proudest. But I, I'm on stage and my job is to kill the band, to tell the band that everybody's enjoying. The band was great to stop playing because it's time. Well, there must have been a, a miscommunication. You know, the, the people at the other end with Dan, somebody's phone died. It was that simple. And so I'm on stage and I'm like getting the crowd psyched for this moment. And it's just not happening. Like the sea has parted. There's a path for him to come through and nothing's happening. And what's worse is the band had started a drum roll. Oh. So now imagine oh. like this is the longest, <laughs> this is the longest. Well, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, a drum roll is the greatest form of anticipation that something's going to happen within about five seconds. Yes. So, so massive crowd formed. 
We start the drum roll. We're waiting for Dan to show up on the motorcycle and it's just not happening. So I have to start filling time. And so I decide I'm going to start to talk about the history of the bike. So I'm just giving the crowd information, naming original cast members of Saturday Night Live. I whip through the cast. <laughs> and now I'm talking about original head writer, Alan Zweibel. You know, I'm, I'm digging deep for material. And the band changes the drum roll to more of a backbeat. So now oh. <laughs> I am on a microphone feeling like I am rapping like i'm being forced to uh give historical facts of comedy over a backbeat that i am horrified by because this is not my nature so this goes on for way too long i'm stressing out about it all of a sudden finally which felt like you know forever i hear the engine rev and dan Aykroyd, god bless him rides his bike through the crowd and up to the entrance of the national comedy center and much to the relief of everyone, you know, 4,000 people, but mostly me. Right. And even to this day, I don't think they remember once Dan hit the stage what happened, but you carry that now like a deep scar. Yes. And I should say what did happen that was great that wasn't planned. Dan jumped off the bike, ran up on stage and had the band play Sweet Home Chicago, hopped on the mic himself and spontaneously performed. Uh, that's and great. so it was great because then no one will remember my awkward rapping <laughs> moment of historical comedy facts uh, on on the mic. Well, you've proven to, while you didn't start in comedy, you finished in it. You got, you got that mic and you got to move from comedy karaoke in the museum to a full live performance for 4,000 people. And you got to feel that internal voice in your head that says, what, what are you doing up here? <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I, I felt the pain of what it's like on stage to have to stretch. It just engendered in me an even greater appreciation for what those of you in comedy do. What to you is the holy grail of comedy that you would like to acquire? What's the Mona Lisa of comedy that you want to put in this museum? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I kind of feel in some ways, I don't, I don't want to say we already have it, but I'm feeling pretty good about the figures like Carlin and Reiner and, you know, the Joan Rivers material that's there, the Smothers Brothers, you know, just to stop down on the Smothers Brothers for a second, uh, because I the think greatest. It, so it has, great. but it, it's a story that has so much to do with the role of this institution. When we uh, approached Tommy and Dick Smothers about their archive, there was earnest surprise that anyone cared. They, they said that they said as much, they were like, Mm, we didn't really think anybody cared. And so it's a good example of what was going to happen to that material. Oh, what a loss that would have been because they were pivotal in, in their television show and in their voice and in their songs of really pushing back against society. You know? Yeah. And we see a lot of people come through who think that like the daily show was the first time that this kind of thing was going on and they learn about the Smothers brothers. And now there's, correspondence with the White House about the controversial material that's on display that, again, was kind of dug up, you know, from somebody's closet and was otherwise going to be lost. And these are figures for whom it's important. Somebody steps up and tells their story. And jumping back a little, just because you mentioned that comedians become big when they find themselves, I thought that was so insightful. One of the things in the museum that is really neat is that Jim Gaffigan allowed us to hologram him at three points in his career. 
And then he sort of hosts that show himself. So it's present day Jim Gaffigan introducing early Jim Gaffigan. And then you see him bombing and struggling. Oh my God. That's uh, hilarious. He, yeah. Then he introduces himself at a different point in his career where you can see him start to find his voice. And then he introduces uh, himself in a 2018, you know, platinum comedy special where you can see he's really found himself. And one of the things he focuses on in the narrative is it's about finding your point of view. And so it's the trajectory of an artist that you can see in this exhibit that I think is so special. And it's inspiring because people who know Jim Gaffigan now only as, you know, somebody who's already made it, it's inspiring to see that he had to go through the struggle to get where he was. He didn't start out that good. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you talk about people coming to visit and study and do research, I think you I think you should make a sort of a tacky comedy condo built into the museum where they can sleep in a crappy bed with a refrigerator with old beer in it. And like they have to have the immersive experience of what what comics spend years doing when they're writing their worst jokes, begging to get on television. Yes, we. I think we come kind of close. We don't make you, you know, sleep in your car, but there is <laughs> there is a, there's a great storytelling piece in the stand up lounge called the Long Grind, and it's all about exactly what you just described. That's another thing about the museum I should mention is there's no third party narration from some authoritative voice. All of the storytelling is in the voices of comedic artists themselves. And so they're talking about their experiences on the road, or there's a piece about difficult venues where Tommy Davidson talks about performing on a diving board over an empty pool in Compton. And so, oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, I will tell you, once I was invited in Omaha to be on the night before the Omaha World Series, which is an outdoor thing in a stadium setup. And I was at second base or something. They had a stage. So horrifying. Comedy outdoors is tough anyway because the laughter goes up and away. But the back netting that catches the balls is between you and the audience. And then you're on a jumbotron, which is 50 feet behind you. And it's also on a delay. <laughs> so you tell your joke. Nobody hears it. The punchline comes sailing over your head. The laugh's not at the right place. You tell them when they hire you, this is a terrible idea. Oh, no, they're going to love it. I go, no, it's terrible for many reasons. They are not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to enjoy it. And why don't you get a band? A band could kill it on second base. I feel like that net between them and me was for, to protect the audience from me because <laughs> I was losing my mind. All you have to do is one of those once, even if they pay you too much money, you know, for the, the hassle fee, and you go, no, I'm not even going to answer this call. And comics have done it time and time again. Why don't you go to the center of the mall? People's idea of where to put a comic is not always perfect. Yeah, and I think if I had a nickel for every time I had to convey to somebody who wanted to book an artist the fragility of how it's going to go, and how that's independent of how talented the comic is, I wouldn't need to do any more fundraising. You know, there are people who come to us asking for help booking artists for shows. And before we'll even start helping them with that, we explain like, do you have a professional sound system? Do you have right. a stage? Do you have lighting? Will there be like a meal being served in the middle of the set? Right. Is it a contained room? 
You know, do people understand that they can't mill about and talk? And Is Santa going on before the comic? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Are there balloons tied to the back of the chair, which happens, and nobody <laughs> can see the stage? You know, like, yeah. like There are 50 things like that where you could just say, disaster's coming. Another reason that comedy is so much harder than other art forms, you know, if you just take stand-up versus live music, you know every couple of moments how well it's going in comedy because they're either going to laugh or they're not at the punchline. And in music, like you could play a song pretty badly. And at the end of that song, people are still going to politely clap. Yeah. The band is also going to enjoy themselves like they're jamming in a garage. A comic alone yeah. is a man in a lifeboat surrounded by sharks. Comics are unbelievably generous with their time. They'll raise money for anything. But if you're raising money for a disease, do not show the movie of the disease right before the comic. <laughs> <laughs> this has happened time and time again, where the horrible disease and they say, no, let's lighten it up a little. Here's Pat Hazel. And you go, we're trying to raise money to make these kids smile. What are you doing? Yes. Let's talk about events. Since we're kind of talking about this and booking comics, you have events that come through or that are scheduled. What's upcoming? And this is not in real time, I don't know when this is going to air, but what kinds of events rather than specific are you, do you have comedy in the museum on occasion? We do. Yes. So we have several different rooms of different sizes in Jamestown where we present shows. You know, we have an arena, we have a vaudeville era theater. That's fantastic. We also have this cool room, the Tropicana room. That's more of a nightclub. And then we have even more intimate rooms within the museum itself. So we're always presenting live comedy throughout the year. Of course, the biggest sort of signature event is the Lucy Ball Comedy Festival, where there are 50 events in a period of about four days. And what's cool that I've heard from comics about the festival is that because we get ticket buyer zip codes from all 50 states, amazingly, you are performing for a cross-section of the country. It's an audience that includes the savvy, maybe more cynical audiences that are coming from New York and attend comedy club shows regularly. You have people from the Midwest for whom this might be their first live comedy experience ever because mostly they consume it on television or you know on a content platform. And the audiences are always very excited and hungry for who's taking the stage. So the feedback I've gotten from comedians who have played Jamestown is that our audiences are great. They really are. And I think it's because they've seen so much good comedy over the years. I have played that theater a few times. I came through with The Good Humor Men, which is when I first came to see the museum. And I was amazed at how alert the audience was, how attentive they were. You know, if you feed somebody good food, they're by nature going to like better food as opposed to feeding them junk food. So, I mean, I feel like by the osmosis of Lucy having been there and it being grown and the festival starting, you are in many ways, you have a, as an audience, you have a comedy crop that people, it's worth coming to tell jokes there. Yeah. I, yeah. I like the way you put that. I think it's true. Also, you know, I, I hope by virtue of the fact that these people have toured the National Comedy Center, they're in those seats with a greater appreciation of all that has happened to lead to that moment for that comic. That this is not just somebody who's so naturally funny that they walk up on stage and it's easy. The trouble about comedy is that good comedy does look effortless and easy. So people haven't traditionally appreciated how hard it was and the level of honing that got people to that moment. But audiences in Jamestown, I think, come in with that reverence and respect. Yeah. Well, I salute you. You've demonstrated a creative courage at a time to develop this, to invest in technology, 
I want to acknowledge what your passion and your investment in this is in being forward thinking of being a young person who is combining the technology with the old world history of comedy and bringing it into a modern age, creating an event that's exciting for people. I would encourage everyone here to make that visit, to get your sense of humor profile done, to try the karaoke, to go to the festival, but at a minimum, go visit thecomedycenter.org and see what it is. Go watch a few of the videos, get on board with that. And I think you'll find it'll be a fun place for you to take your family. Journey, you have a great energy and uh, are a great ambassador for comedy in general. And I think uh, speaking for the fraternity of comedy, we're grateful that you're at the helm. Well, thank you, Pat. That means a lot coming from you. And I really appreciate all that you have contributed to comedy yourself and all that you're continuing to contribute to celebrating creativity in general with the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers, friend. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. La, 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 la. Stare.